and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. So excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, who I'm really excited to share with you, I was hoping you could go over to patreon.com slash intentional performers. Once again, that's patreon.com slash intentional performers. And over there, you'll see how you can subscribe to the show by giving as little as $2 a month and as much as $10 a month. It really does help us as we continue to build out this platform and make this podcast as good as it possibly can be. Also, if you are inclined or inspired or find this conversation knowledgeable, we would love it if you share this conversation, share it wherever you're social. It does help us as we continue to expand our reach. Now to today's guest. So I was wondering, how do I introduce this person? He has done so much for the psychology community. He is really a pioneer in a lot of ways, and I'm just really grateful that I got the time to sit down and chat with him. So Dr. Norman Rosenthal is a world-renowned psychiatrist, researcher, and author who first described seasonal affective disorder, also known as SAD, and he pioneered the use of light therapy as a treatment during his 20 years at the National Institute of Mental Health. He's a highly cited researcher and best-selling author. He has written over 200 scholarly articles and authored or co-authored eight popular books. And I think what's so cool about Dr. Rosenthal is that he has worked in the weeds with patients and had a private practice while also going deep into the research and trying to really figure out ways to help people from a, from a research standpoint. So he's written books including The Winter Blues, and he also has a New York Times bestseller called Transcendence, and The Gift of Adversity, which is the book when I asked him, hey, Dr. Rosenthal, which of your eight books should I read? He recommended The Gift of Adversity, so we certainly will get into that in this conversation. He has practiced psychiatry for over three decades, coached and conducted numerous clinical trials of medications and alternative treatments, such as transcendental meditation for for psychiatric disorders. He and his work have been featured on Good Morning America, The Today Show, NPR, and other national media outlets, and we're just really fortunate to have him on the Intentional Performers Podcast. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Dr. Norman Rosenthal. Dr. Norman Rosenthal, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. 
So excited to chat with you. We just chatted for about 30 minutes. We chatted on the phone a couple of weeks ago uh, for a little bit. I felt like I could have talked with you forever. And then I read your book and now I feel like I know you intimately, but I, but I don't. So I'm excited to get to know you today, know your story, know your journey, and of course, learn more about the wonderful work that you've done throughout your career. Where I'd love to start is to learn about what life was like for you in South Africa and growing up in apartheid. And I know you talk a lot about that in your book. So give people some context on what life was like for you as a kid. It was a strange world in South Africa growing up under the apartheid regime. And uh, we were rather privileged. We were able to do a lot with our money because, of course, there was the suppression of a large percentage of the population and labor was cheap and so everybody had help uh, which makes life easier uh, unless you are the help so there was an underlying sense of guilt that we were exploiting people uh, and at the same time fear because when you live in a fascist country uh, there is a lot of fear all the time who's over who's listening who's overhearing what you're saying uh, what could happen to you? I had relatives who were stuck in jail, put in solitary confinement, treated brutally. And this is common in fascist countries across the world, and it was at that time a very authoritarian, somewhat fascist country under the uh, apartheid regime. So there was fear, uh, there was privilege, there was guilt, and at the same time the country is gorgeous, that the climate is beautiful, and we were able to thrive in certain ways. So it was an uncomfortable, privileged situation, and I was happy to be able to leave the country. When you talk about guilt, what did that feel like for you? Well, I think when you see people who are being exploited and mistreated, and you know that somehow, because of the way the system is rigged, you're a beneficiary of that. It puts you in a situation where you feel complicit and at the same time afraid. So it's, it's a sort of background discomfort that you live with, that if you're living in a democracy, you feel free of, of that. Although, as we know, even in democracies, there isn't always equality. And you talk a lot about this in the book, but there was violence, there was crime, and you have this sort of watershed moment occur in your life where you, you actually get stabbed. So can you tell people a little bit about that experience and what that was like for you? Yes. South Africa has become much more violent than it was at the time. But even then, uh, I had a terrible experience, really. I was uh, with a girlfriend in a car after our date. Everything we were doing was quite innocent. And I was interrupted um, by a voice coming through the window, which I thought was the police, you know, looking around for people doing what they oughtn't to be doing in cars. And in fact, it wasn't the policeman, it was people attacking us. And so soon a rock went through the windshield and my side window was smashed and I felt a hand coming at me. And fortunately, we fought off the assailants and I got to the hospital on time and it was a close call. And I think it was one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had uh, in my book that you read, The Gift of Adversity, at the beginning, I quote uh, Ian Fleming and James Bond saying, you only live twice, once when you're born and once when you look death in the face. 
And there is something about having been almost killed that really sharply focuses the mind. And it was within the next year that I got married. Our kid was conceived. It was like, you better hurry up. You don't know how much longer you've got on this earth. So I feel very fortunate to be sitting here talking to you many years later. Uh, it was just a lucky break. When I hear fortunate, I hear gratitude. How do you think about gratitude, either from a scientific standpoint or personally to you, and how has it impacted how you've lived your life? Gratitude has become an increasingly important component of my internal world. I think one of the huge maladies of our time is entitlement. We're entitled to this, we're entitled to that. And then if you feel entitled, then you always are feeling like you've been shortchanged. I'm entitled to it and I didn't get it and now I'm angry and I'll take it out on somebody. And if you feel like everything good that you get is like a gift, then life seems to be an abundance because everything is wonderful. Now, I don't want to say that I never stray from the, the line, so to speak, but that is definitely a line to which I try to hew. Uh, feeling grateful it gives you warm fuzzies, not to be too scientific about it. Uh, it really feels good because there are so many things that we're grateful for, we should be grateful for. Well, I, I can't say we, I say I. I should be grateful for a lot of things, living in what is a great country, really. Um, in a great time of peace and um, where we do have opportunities. Yes, they could be better, no question about it, but there are a lot of opportunities. Having a chance, you know, just to have a wonderful conversation with somebody and perhaps have other people listen and join in in, in a way, whether it's by listening or by responding or whatever. There's a lot to be grateful for. You know, I feel. When I hear you talking, I, I can hear a sense of gratitude that you ended up coming here from South Africa. And we share some commonalities. We're both of Jewish descent and um, have had people close to us be involved with the Holocaust. And my grandma came over here from Hungary. And something that always stuck with me was when she was coming over on the boat, having lost family members. Uh, she looked at an American soldier, and they were pulling into New York City and saw the Statue of Liberty. And the soldier turns to my grandma and says, Ma'am, you, know, you, you have no idea how happy I am to see that lady again. And my grandma looks up to him and goes, No, sir, you have no idea how happy I am to see that lady again. And I think for Holocaust survivors, at least the ones that I've been around, there's sort of two paths that I've seen them take. One path is my grandma lived very grateful and she was so, I'll just use that word grateful again, to have a place like America to come to and to have survived and to have started a family and to have grandkids. And so she, she now has dementia, but she lived her life really in, in gratitude. And I've been out around others who are bitter and feel like everything was taken from them. And so I'm not suggesting that you went through what she went through, but I am curious to pull on that thread of gratitude. I know you spent time with Viktor Frankl, um, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, which is a legendary book. 
um, either maybe perspective from him or from other family members or people that left South? Well, something that I have a hard time wrapping my head around. I was born in 1950 in Johannesburg, and I'd heard about the Holocaust, and I thought this was something that happened way, way back when, but really it was just five years before. And my grandfather's family, um, I think eight siblings, were wiped out. One was in a concentration camp and survived, and my grandfather had come to South Africa years before. So how fortunate that he had done that. Uh, it wasn't easy for him. I think he was 14 at the time when he came out uh, all, all alone, um, traveling. Presumably there were companions along the way. Uh, there, was a sea, there was a sea fair um, from uh, one of the Baltic ports that was able to, uh, in, it enabled him to get to South Africa. And um, so just the idea of these six million people being just wiped out you know, everyone, a human being with a background, people who love that person and a hope for a future and promise and ambitions and loves and hates and fears, six million times over, it's kind of more than my mind can uh, grasp. So um, I think that, and, and I, I don't just, I think, all people who are killed. It's not just the Jewish Holocaust. It's Armenians. It's Vietnamese. It's all kinds of people, Cambodians. Um, you know, the idea that we can, you know, even to kill one person, but to kill masses of people. What kind of a being is a human being to have that capacity and to enable that to occur? So it, it's a really... A cosmic thing to try to understand. But I do uh, gain tremendous strength from people such as Vinca Victor Frankl, whom I had the privilege of meeting. A colleague of mine was teaching a course with Victor Frankl in Austria. And with his kind help, I landed up in Victor Frankl's summer house. And we were sitting there uh, with his much younger wife, who happened to be the nurse who nursed him to health in the concentration camp, fell in love with him, and there they were back in Vienna. And I asked through my friend who was a translator into German, is there anything that I can't ask you? And he said, no, you ask anything you want. So he had reached that level of peace with his past that there was nothing that was off limits. And he told me about the horrors, about, you know, um, his father or mother, I can't remember which, dying in his arms, about his wife who was killed, etc., etc., and how he hung on. And coming out of that experience, how he actually evolved a philosophy, uh, which can be summarized by saying that even in the most extreme situations, there's one thing that people can't take away from you, and that is your right to choose how you're going to view your situation. And he chose that right and chose to view it as something that you could take some control over. And he did. He evolved a philosophy, a therapy, logotherapy, uh, that's helped probably millions of people 
And so out of the most horrible circumstances, he was able to sort of seize a gold ring and make something out of it. And uh, I'll never forget that meeting because you really felt like you were in the presence of a great man. And, of course, gratitude is part of that. I asked him, you know, whether he forgave the people who had killed and been involved in that whole massacre. And he said, you know, I don't really understand what forgiveness means. What I understand is reconciliation. And that means putting grievances behind us and figuring out a way to live together. What's the distinction between that and forgiveness? Well, he said he didn't really understand forgiveness. Forgiveness is you are releasing somebody from uh, their guilt. You are giving them more than amnesty because amnesty is freedom from prosecution. Uh, forgiveness is their their sin is erased. Their guilt is is expiated. They can now clear their mind and make it fresh like they didn't do it, uh, as far as you're concerned. As far as Frankel was concerned, and I really see eye to eye with him here, it's not my job to cleanse your mind of what you did. That's your job. My job is to create an environment between you and me such that we can at least do business together and don't spit at each other when we pass each other in the street and even nod and smile and get on with our business. That there's no role for hatred, vengeance, grievances, that we need to develop a way in a mutually civil fashion of continuing to, we don't have to love each other. You know, so I think that's reconciliation. Guilt is kind of, uh, forgiveness is kind of saying you can take that guilty part of your brain and kind of wipe the slate clean. And I think my sense is Frankel says, said, that's not my business, what you do with your brain. It's not for me to get into your brain and say you're okay, you're clean. I have that feeling that that's what happens when confession occurs that somehow it's cleaned at a very basic level in a person's mind. As you look back at, you know, getting stabbed, uh, you talk about in the book, your your mom uh, at some point well, had multiple altercations with, with people, but there's one sort of graphic chapter where she almost had her life taken from her. How do you reconcile those things for yourself? Well, you know, fortunately, I don't carry grievances. I have no grievances. Um, elsewhere, I've written about a man I treated who had a grievance list, and he would put people on, and he would come into sessions with me, and let's say the guy, his enemy was Joe Smith, and he would talk about Joe Smith, Joe Smith, Joe Smith, Joe Smith. And uh, one time he was even in the Latin Quarter, in the French Quarter, excuse me, of um, New Orleans. And he went to a voodoo practitioner, Sister Liz, and he wanted to know how he could kill his enemy. And she said, well, here's a candle. 
just take it. When you get home, light the candle and put the person's name underneath the candle and just let it burn and see what happens. And within a week, the guy was dead no. of a heart attack. No way. That's creepy. Now, it's creepy. I don't want to have any part in anything <laughs> like that. I feel like a grievance or a vendetta like that, if you carry it, it's, it's baggage. It's, it's a burden. It's like, I think of it as an acid that corrodes the vessel that contains it. And I have no space for that. Uh, you know, on the other hand, if somebody mistreats me, you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to avoid that person. That's just common sense. So it's almost as if you have um, this idea of reconciliation is so that I myself can move forward. And as you said earlier, um, you know, that the work, the deep work that they need to figure out is the work that they need to do. Um, that's not for me to give to them. And almost as I'm hearing it, it would be more powerful if they could do that deep internal work themselves than have someone just, you know, say that they forgive them. Um, does that really move the needle for them to actually look inward and figure out why they did what they did and, and really do the, the deep, meaningful work there? I'm curious as I'm saying all that, when we think about our system and you know our, our jails and our criminal system would you do it any differently um than we're currently doing it based on on what you know uh, I, I south africa obviously had to reconcile a lot of atrocities uh for a lot of years and did so publicly in 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 some instances as well i'm just curious and i didn't think about this before we chatted but our criminal system where we take someone and then we put them in jail, would you do it a different way? Well, you know, I think it should be studied. I mean, I think they should study doing things one way and doing things another way and seeing what helps. My understanding, and this is not mine alone, it's a common belief, is that there are much too many people in jails. It's out of proportion to any other country. Uh, too many people in jails um, who are being taken out of the mainstream of society, who are not necessarily getting rehabilitated, who are costing the society a great deal. Uh, I think recently there was some legislation passed that moves things in the right direction. You know, I think these things should be studied. I think I'm a researcher at heart. I'm a scientist. I think these things are amenable to being studied, just like we study whether a drug works or not for a particular illness. We should study whether a punishment works or not for a particular crime. And you said you're a researcher and a scientist at heart. When did that come into your being? When did that become something that you identify it as, yeah, that's, that's what I want to do? When I was 16 years old, I decided I wanted to become a psychiatric researcher. Um, I always loved the sciences. They always turned me on. But I loved the arts, and psychiatry seemed to be a point of intersection between the humanities, the arts, and the sciences. So that was my adolescent dream, and that was one of the factors that uh, pushed me into medicine, uh, pushed me to the United States, where I saw the best opportunities for research, and brought me here. As I look out of your window, I see the, is that the Bethesda Naval uh, the National Institute of Mental Health is just really across the road. 
And so that's how I landed up in this vicinity. And for 20 years, I worked at the NIMH after my psych residency at Columbia, New York City. So it was all geared towards that. But uh, the arts keep, um, I would say, intruding, but they're not really intruding. They're interweaving, interlacing with my scientific interests. And so a lot of my writing has really uh, borrowed that particular thread of my interest and drive. I love that. When you're 16 years old and you start to show an interest for this, what do mom and dad say? Mom and dad were very opposed to my doing psychiatry. They didn't value it. They didn't esteem it. But I think underneath it, they kind of didn't want me kind of poking around in the family dynamics. They thought that I, I'd best leave all that alone. <laughs> so I, they were not in favor of it. And it was one of the early times that I totally asserted myself. And I said, look, this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, once I was clear, I said to my mother, what do you think would be a better thing for me to do? She said, well, how about pathology? You know, she would much rather that I had been working with dead specimens of tissues than live people and prodding around in all the family dynamics. It, what values did, did they pass down to you? As you look back and you think, yeah, this is something I got from mom, something I got from dad. What stands out? Integrity. That comes first and foremost, integrity, not um, telling the truth, putting it above self-interest. Um, a story was told, my mother's father had been uh, a trader, he'd had a business during the war, the Second World War, where he had imported and sold oil, which was a very, very prized commodity in the short times of the, of the war. And he could have profiteered. He could have upped the price, like what we see them doing with the drugs these days. The guy who multiplies it by 100 or whatever, an old drug that's out there. Here are people dying of an illness, and he's kind of thinks that it's just a great idea to profiteer. Well, it was a point of pride that he never hiked up the oil price, but sort of rationed it out and sold it at the same price and felt like there were people up north who were putting their lives on the line and uh, that, that he was just going to hold the line. So there was a sense of old world decency that I still think has applicability in modern times and the understanding that whoever is on the other side, we're sitting across a table from each other, that other person's a human being and needs to be treated as such. And those principles have been very valuable. You know, it's, there's a sense of, you know, nice guys finish last, but that's not a good philosophy to lead one's life by. There's something interesting as I'm thinking about, I'm putting myself into your world and you started this conversation by saying you grew up a, of privilege. You use that word privilege. And that word is now being used a lot in our society here in the U.S. And personally, as a Jewish person who uh, came from privilege uh, in the U.S., I think my generation of Jews are the safest, most secure generation of Jews that has ever existed in the world specifically American Jews, not, not 
Israeli Jews are something a little bit different and other countries have some Jews too, but American Jews. And I think one of the things that I'm trying to wrap my head around is we see what goes on in Pittsburgh and what goes on in Charlottesville and there is anti-Semitism. All the numbers show that it's on the rise. And I think I read a a stat this morning that showed that there was 58% more anti-Semitic acts um, I think in 2018, don't quote me on that stat, but I'm trying to make sense of how do you not balance, how do you handle privilege while still understanding that things can change like that? They can change quickly. Um, I'm just curious to get your wisdom on that. Well, let's go back to Viktor Frankl. He was the head of the neurology unit or lab department in Vienna, pre-war. And he was a brilliant man. Why didn't he leave? He gave various explanations to me, but my sense was that he couldn't really imagine that somebody at that level would be sent in a cattle truck to a death camp. So I would say nobody should ever be smug that the evil that exists as one of the facets of humanity should never be forgotten. And it can be applied to anybody or any group It can be an issue of race. It can be an issue of religion. uh, And I think we should never be smug that we are secure because history shows that the tide can turn very quickly and not just against Jews or blacks or anybody, but but really that it can turn quickly, that, that people have got a very ingrained tribal element inside them where they will gang together with their tribe against some other tribe. We saw it in Ireland, Protestants and Catholics. Um, You know, you'd think the same religion, same doctrine in so many ways, but such viciousness. Um, I I, uh, remember a line from uh, House of Cards, you know, that friends make the worst enemies. And we just need to be careful, I think. We need, we need to be mindful that there is the streak within humanity of nastiness, is putting it mildly, and that it never goes away, and that we need to be ever vigilant. I love this idea, you know, we often hear too much of anything's a bad thing, but I also love this idea of nothing of something is also bad, right? So anxiety, which can cripple people is seen as a negative but if we have no anxiety maybe we don't look both ways before we cross the street maybe we drink and drive maybe we don't put our seatbelt on so what i'm hearing from you is having some vigilance having some anxiety and not being so smug mm-hmm. um, or so complacent that you don't look in the mirror and say this can happen to me is healthy um so i think where that line is like where does it become fear-mongering and like we're just building something up versus, hey, we need to also just be aware. And I think that's something that a lot of people, 
I mean, look, you look at our politics today, there is fear on both sides of, of it and people leveraging fear to gain power in some instances. So I'm, I'm wrestling with that right now because I certainly don't have it all figured out. I have a tendency to lean towards optimism and see the good in people. And uh, fortunately, my wife doesn't always see things that way because there are times where you do need to lock the door. There are times when you do need to not just trust humanity. Um, and I love what you said about tribal and that there, is, there are elements of us that are, that are dark. Um, when I say us, I mean humans. But it's definitely something I'm, I, I'm grappling with and wondering. Um, you know, there's, there's a movement within the Jewish community that says that we should all, you know, what brings us together is anti-Semitism. Like that is our thing that actually unites our people. And I think for some, certainly me, it's like, man, that's not very hopeful. That's, that's kind of sad. Um, well, you know, I think what you really are communicating is this incredibly complex and beautiful tapestry of life that it, it is so multifaceted. Let's just take the anxiety issue, for example. It's good to be anxious under certain circumstances and not under other circumstances. So Freud himself said anxiety is a warning bell. You know, we want a smoke detector. We want to know when there's carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, want to know when there's smoke in the house. We want those warning bells, and the same warning bells exist in our own mind uh, when there's danger. The trouble with us nowadays is that the warning bells are going off much more than they should. I know you and I talked a little bit about our mutual interest in transcendental meditation. And I think what that does, uh, and it's not the only thing that does it, but it's an effective technique, is it helps reduce that sort of baseline anxiety so that we can more crisply respond when we really need to be anxious and the rest of the time, we can give our system a rest, and we're not sort of grinding away at our artery linings and our stomach linings and giving ourselves that break that enables us to respond when we have to. I love the word respond because <coughs> so many times people just react. Um, they get hijacked. We could get into amygdala hijack, um, but they get emotionally hijacked or cognitively hijacked. And... The notion of responding, and there's a there's a cool formula that's used in sports, and the Ohio State Buckeyes football team used it, and I think it originated from uh, someone named Brian Kite, where it's event plus response equals outcome. And the idea is similar to what you talked about earlier with Viktor Frankl. An event happens, how do you choose to respond to it? And then that will dictate um, some of the outcome and outcomes also out of our control in a lot of ways, but the response is, is the key. And so I love what you're talking about as far as response, as you look at your career, you have a amazing thing happen where seasonal affective disorder is something that you pioneered and were at the forefront of. I would love to know the backstory as far as how that came to be and how you think about it today compared to when you you first started to do research around it. Well, it was a lucky thing in a way because I myself responded to the winter, which I hadn't had in South Africa. You know, these short, dark days didn't exist in Johannesburg. 
So then when I came to the United States and I encountered the winter, I felt, internally I felt myself slowing down, feeling a little down, not being as productive and creative as I had been in the summer. And then when the summer came, it all got better. And this happened for three cycles when I was in my residency in New York. And then I came down to the NIMH and not coincidentally landed up in a group that studied rhythms and was now studying light. And in that context, I had one patient who had this problem of winter troubles to a more extreme degree than I did. And we conceived the idea of exposing him to bright light. And he came out of his depression was really remarkable and I realized at that time that in order to really study this we had to develop a group of these people and so there was a Washington Post journalist Sandy Rovner and I persuaded her to run an article featuring one of these people with the winter troubles and soliciting uh, whether there were others this was before the internet this was in the early 1980s and we got thousands of responses from all over the country, and they all had this monotonous description of when autumn comes, I slow down, I lose my energy, I lose my zest for living, variations on theme that goes on through Thanksgiving, through Christmas. Come the spring, things get better, and I get my vitality back again. And I thought, wow, you know, we've got a syndrome over here. So I collected a group of people uh, and we took them in the summer, and we watched them through the winter, and indeed, they began to get depressed one by one. Um, one, of their, one of my friends said, uh, you know, if, if they don't get depressed, won't you look rather stupid? And I thought, well, you know, you've got to take a risk. You've got to risk looking stupid. It's not such a bad thing. And, but they got depressed. They came out with the light, and the work was replicated all over the world, and now it's just understood that seasonal affective disorder is part of the human response to the world. How did the community respond to it initially? Oh, I got quite a bit of teasing and people being skeptical. I remember one woman at a meeting, professional meeting, uh, she said to me, Oh, Norman, you know, come stand here in front of the light because I'm already feeling depressed. And she was being fun and funny. But that was the kind of, I wouldn't even say contempt, but humor with which the thing was greeted. But actually, it can be a really serious problem. There are documented cases of suicide uh, in response to the difficulties in the winter. It's an amazing thing. This morning, I woke up and I've got a two-year-old and a three-year-old. My three-year-old boy tends to wake up a little bit before his light goes off in his room when he's supposed to. And so he came in. And it was about 6.30 in the morning, and we looked out our window, and we saw the sunrise. It was this bright orange sky, and we were just watching the sun sort of come up. He thought it was like coming out of the hills, and we were talking about the sunrise. And it was such a beautiful way to start my morning. And I was thinking, like, man, I wish I started every morning watching the sunrise with my son. And to bring it into like a serious context, I think there is something beauty when you can incorporate nature into your life and, and specifically as it relates to light. And I went to school at Syracuse University in central New York, and you don't see the sun very often. 
And I know in Cornell, they for years have had a lot of suicide issues um, there as well. I'm curious, going back to your story, there's this combination of science and art that you're referencing. When you were getting this recognition or acknowledgement of your research, why not just stay the path and continue on the research? Because it it seems like over the years, you've also maintained a, a practice and also wanted to be working with people. Why, why have that balance in your career? Well, I think that all of us have different sides that we want to fulfill. You know, somebody may want to take up ballroom dancing. Somebody else may always want to sing in a chorale and so on and so forth. You know, um, I think that it's what has been called um, by Abraham Maslow self-actualization. You know, he says musicians must make music, painters must paint, writers must write. Whatever it is that we feel we need to do, we must do. And we have different strands within our own mind as to what we want to accomplish. So I felt wonderful about the seasonal affective disorder, and I continue, even to this day, um, to maintain my expertise in the area. Um, I've written a book winter blues for the general public it's now in its fourth edition i need to update it because new things have happened light therapy turns out to be much more useful than just for sad can you explain light therapy for people that aren't aware of it essentially it means exposing yourself to much more light than you would normally be getting usually through a fixture like a box um, that you set on a desk or tabletop sit in front of for a certain amount of time and um, that was what we did initially with our seasonal affective disorder people, brought them out of their depression. And we, you know, was there for 20 years and sort of studied many, many aspects of the issue. Uh, but now the new fascinating aspect of light therapy is that it's good for non-seasonal depression. Last year there was a publication uh, on light therapy for bipolar depression, which is very hard to treat people with bipolar disorder who go into the depressed phase, the manic phase has proven to be much more treatable than the depressed phase. So most of them sit in the depressed phase. And so that turns out to respond to light therapy as well. Elderly depression, uh, depression in pregnant women before they give birth, these all respond to light therapy, even though they're not seasonal. It seems as though light is doing something very basic to brain neurotransmitters. So there's that whole story over there. But then I get fascinated by things. And when I get fascinated, I am impelled to understand them better. So in my private practice, some, I, you know, I started a private clinical research organization where we, I was really wanting to study alternate kinds of treatments, but I also studied a lot of medications to largely to pay the rent and the light bill. Um, so in that context, and I was also doing my private practice, which is now I'm in my 40th year there. So one of the young men who was bipolar told me, hey, listen, doc, he says, you know, your medicines are all good and well, but what's really making me happy 90% of the time is this transcendental meditation that I'm doing. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I did it in South Africa, you know, 35 years ago. So he said, well, why don't you get back to it? 
as I'm nodding my head, you know, 20 minutes twice a day, where am I going to find the time? But he nagged me, put me in touch with somebody. And um, basically, you know, when I heard him nagging me like that, I thought, wow, you know, this is the universe talking to me through this young man. Let me see what it's all about. And indeed, I started doing it, and it's actually transformed my life. It's made me very much calmer and more playful, more creative. Several of my books were published after I started meditating. I do it twice a day, every day. I love it. You told me earlier that that's a little bit how we're talking right here today, is that you just learned yourself, if I'm understanding correctly. Yeah, I went Rockville, Maryland. They call it Bethesda. I call it Rockville growing up in this area. Anything, we, we say anything on Rockville Pike, it's, it's considered Rockville, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, yeah, I did it, and, and they had your book up, and uh, and they said, yeah, you know, Dr. Norman Rosenthal is uh, in the area, and so I felt like you would be someone I'd want to chat with, and I think I was right about that. Um, you said something earlier that I wanted to pull on, which is you felt like the universe was talking to you. Do you have a spiritual framework? Do you, how, do you, how do you think about spirituality? Well, you know, I would say, especially since I've been meditating, I do feel more connected with the universe. It sounds weird, I know, but I have a friend. Um, I've had her since elementary school, and she started doing TM, following, hearing about my TM. And she said, you know, when we talk about our meditation, we talk about it differently. You always talk about tuning in to your inner self and getting more connected with your internal self and more settled. I think of tuning out like I'm tuning into the universe. And I thought, well, that's cool. You know, good for you. You know, you're you think you're kind of channeling the universe? Who am I to argue? But you know, I feel a little bit that way myself now. I'm plugging into the universe. It, it sounds weird, but it is a feeling. I don't have any scientific reason to back it up. But it is a feeling that I'm more connected um, with whatever it is that's happening in the universe. And maybe it's my human universe. But it could be beyond that. I don't know. I don't have answers to all these things. And even the best physicists don't have answers to all these things. If you uh, saw the uh, recent NOVA thing on quantum entanglement, which is a very weird uh, phenomenon. Einstein called it spooky action at a distance. And uh, they really don't know a lot of what's going on. So I wouldn't presume. So... I do feel a certain spiritual depth that's been enhanced by my meditation practice. In the book, you talk about death. <laughs> There's a couple chapters there where you really go into, <laughs> into death and the, some people's fear of death. And I will tell you, when people ask me my biggest fear, it is unequivocally death. Um, I, I don't live with that fear. I don't worry about that but it's not public speaking it's not shots or snakes there is a um 
sometimes when I am in a place where I am ruminating uh, around fear, it's it's around death. And um, I'm curious to get your thoughts on on death. Well, it's interesting. You know, you read my book, The Gift of Adversity, and when I was stabbed, as we've discussed, and they were rushing me to the hospital. And I realized that my lung had been punctured because I knew enough about pathology to know that if you breathe in and every time you breathe in, you get a stabbing pain and it's where I was stabbed, that my lung had been punctured and that was what was going on. And I thought, you know, I could die before I arrive at the hospital. I could bleed out. I could die here. And I thought, if I do, it'll be all right. And I think that was largely the endorphins that get released when you get stabbed. But there was an acceptance. And then later on, after I had my son, who's now an adult and a psychiatrist himself, um, I, and he was a little boy, and I thought, you know, it would not be okay if I died. This little creature really needs me. So when you say you're afraid of death and you tell me you've got two children, one age two and one age three, that is a very vulnerable time for a parent because one feels that you've got these little creatures who are totally dependent on you and, of course, their mother, but you're playing a crucial role. And I think that's a peak time for being afraid of dying. Um, I think that we're all going to die. But I think we often lead our lives as though we aren't. And then, bang, somebody gets some kind of fatal illness. And, wow, I wasn't expecting that. Well, of course, you can't really live expecting to get a fatal illness every day. Um, But somehow, if you accept the idea that that's just part of the whole cycle, then life becomes less anxiety-ridden that you just understand that every day is a special gift, every hour is a special gift, every encounter you have with a person is a special gift, and we only get a certain amount of gifts, but it's a lot if you have a decent length of life, and then it's time to go, and that's it. And so at this point, I don't fear death. I'm not looking forward to it. As Woody Allen says, I don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) He can understand it, but doesn't want to be there when it happens. And you can really empathize with that. But um, I think that coming to terms with the idea of our own death is part of developing a sense of serenity. You mentioned gifts, and your book is called The Gift of Adversity. Uh, You've written eight books. Am I right about that? Nine. Uh, so nine bucks. Um, and the chapter that was a gift for me in that book, there were a lot of gifts, but it was this quest for excellence chapter. And there's a quote in there that, that really resonated with me as I'm writing my first book right now. And it's been about two, two and a half year process. And I imagine I still got some time left, um, is Hemingway saying all drafts, all first drafts are shit. And I was like, yes, I'm, I'm on the right path. Um, but I'd love to hear from you about your writing process, having written nine books. What does it look like 
Um, just dive into that a little bit. Well, it begins with my swearing up and down that I will never write another book again. <laughs> and that's the beginning of my next book. And then something comes up in my mind that I feel is really worth writing about. And that's the only reason to write is if you feel you have something really worth saying because there's so many books out there. The saying in Ecclesiastes is, to the writing of books there is no end. And so the only reason to write is if you really feel you have something to say. Now, in my genre, and I guess it's yours as well, it's usually something that can be helpful to people because I'm at my core, I'm a healer. And whether I've been in practice or whether I've been doing research, um, the idea is helping people. Um, so, for example, the first book, which was Seasons of the Mind, came right out of um, my work with SAD. And then later on, a big revision of it became Winter Blues. And this was my sad, and there's the Winter Blues Survival Guide. So there are three that were right out of, out of that. So that you've got to have something that you say, wait, this is new, this is interesting. Uh, and then when I got onto Transcendental Meditation, that then led to two books. So the beginning of the process is the idea. And then the idea germinates. And then when you think you've got enough there, you pull together a proposal and you try and get somebody to buy it. Do you have a contract yet? Do you have an, uh, uh, somebody who will say, I'll publish your book? Yes, but that's that's like a conversation. That's a different conversation. Different conversation. Yeah. Okay. Because but yes, I, I know my path. I know what I'm doing. I actually hired a coach who's coaching me because I've never done this before and I value coaching. I am a coach. Um but yeah, so I, I went down a lot of, there's a lot of research there to try to figure out the best path. Good. Uh, you know, people are self-publishing and there's something to be said for that and something to be said against it. And that's another conversation as well. But then then I, I you have to put aside the time. It's not going to just happen. You've got to assign time to write. You've got to block it out as though it were uh, an appointment. And you start sketching out the outline, like an architect building a house, figuring out all the things you want to say and how you're going to get the material for the book. And it grows in an organic way from there. So I'll give you like the premise of the book and would love to get your thoughts. And then you have a, I'll start with, there's a part in that chapter from a woman named Elise Hancock, where she talks about giving yourself a learner's permit when you are learning. And I love that so much because when I got my learner's permit, I can remember the first day I had it, my parents took me on the highway and it was raining like crazy. And they're just like, just go. Like, you're going to have to figure it out. I remember being like on the far right side, just gripping the wheel. And uh, I think that learner's mind is, is so valuable for people to experience because when we start becoming an expert at something, we lose uh, the memories that we had when we first started and how hard it was when we first started to do anything. And uh, the, 
the book that I'm writing is really about your mindset for preparation being different than your mindset for performance. So if we just use her concept, like great to have a beginner's mind when you are preparing, but you want to have an expert mind when you're actually performing. And so there needs to be a shift. And you said earlier, there's a times to be anxious and there's times to not be anxious. And so anxiety and preparation is actually quite helpful and useful. It's no, I'm not going to do okay. Like I need to do better. I need to learn. I need to grow. I need to get better. And then once I get on stage or I'm performing or I'm, you know, in a baseball is about to start, like I'm in a stadium with 35,000 people. Like I, it's not the time for me to be anxious or, you know, be uncomfortable when you're preparing and then learn how to be comfortable when you're performing. So I have these binaries that suggest that a shift needs to take place when I'm preparing and when I'm performing. And what I found in my private practice is that even the elite of the elite, a lot of the tip of the arrow types of performers, they either have to intentionally shift their mind from preparation mind to performance mind or even some of the pro athletes I've worked with stay in preparation mind when they're in their performance and it cripples them. Uh, so perfectionism is one that gets talked about. Like if you ask a lot of pro athletes, are they perfectionists? They'll say yes. And when they say yes, they're saying yes really to the preparation. When they're performing, it's not about being perfect anymore. It's about adapting. And so I have found that to be massive for myself. Uh, for this conversation, I prepared like crazy, read your book, have some notes. But then when I'm in conversation with you, I just want to be present and, and try to listen. And so I would love to hear you've been around some of the top performers in the world, in your book, you talk about Ray Dalio, who wrote a great book called Principles. Um, you mentioned other people um, that you've been around that are tip of the arrow type people. Uh, Man's Search for Meaning is one of the all-time greatest books I've ever read, Man's Search for Meaning. So I'm curious what you've noticed, if you've noticed anything when you see people prepare their mindset and then shift into a, a performance mind. Yeah, I think it's a good distinction. And I certainly, I have uh, worked with a Major League Baseball player and we certainly had that process there where preparation was very intense. But then uh, he was a pitcher and once he got onto the mound, then to let that prefrontal cortex get in the way would be very bad. He had to just go with a muscle memory. Like, for example, I mean, both you and I, right here and now, we have got a lifetime of career behind us and experience behind us. But right here in this present conversation, we can't start grasping at this and that. We have to be in the moment. We have to be in the flow. Otherwise, it'll come out all stilted. And that's the same with performance of any kind, you know, whether it's pitching, whether it's an athlete or anybody else, really. So I think that there are these different aspects of the mind, both of which are really important. And I think it's good that you are making this sort of bimodal distinction. Kahneman, in Thinking Fast and Slow, talks about two aspects of mind that uh, have a different way of thinking. And I think it's a valuable concept. I think it's a contribution. Awesome. Well, that's great to hear. Uh, I want to go back to you. And what do you do to make sure that you're mentally where you want to be? Well, I'm a great one for habits. 
you know, and writing, for example, is a habit, you know, to think that you're just going to sit down and be kissed by the muse and write out of the blue is not realistic. You've got to set aside time. You've got to do it. So I have my disciplines that I follow. Uh, I work out three times a week. I walk almost every day. I do yoga twice a week. I meditate twice a day. Uh, these are sort of fundamental things that I do to keep my body and mind, because they're completely interconnected, as we know, in decent shape. And then, you know, I have a schedule that I maintain and that I, I work with. Some of it is client work, patient work, because I, I coach as well as do therapy. Some of it is um, writing I set aside a whole day when I don't see clients or patients. Today's the day. And I do creative things and um, so on and so forth. So I think discipline. But discipline makes it sound uh, more arduous than it is. Once you set a template and you adhere to it, it becomes easy. That's the advantage of habits. They make things easy that would otherwise be difficult if you had to make this decision. Should I work out today? Should I do yoga today? I don't think that's a successful way to run at least my life. I want to just tap on this one concept that is plugging away at my brain right now, which is you're a psychiatrist. You have MD, right? Yet you've been open to things outside of medication, uh, you you talked about transcendental meditation and prescribing that for people in, in some senses. What about your framework and how you see the world allows you to be open to those different possibilities as opposed to I'm sure there are other psychiatrists that, you know, sort of have a way of treating and they go about that way? You know, it's part of my nature. I have always been fascinated by things that don't fit into the box. And it's just been my way. I've been contrarian. As I told you, my parents did not want me to do psychiatry. They wanted me to do pathology. But I knew what I wanted to do. And I think, you know, even if you think of investing, um, you don't invest where everybody else is running and go buy that share. You think maybe this one is really going to do better. But it makes that makes it sound more strategic than it really is. I am naturally an open-minded person, and I've never regretted being open-minded. The only times I've regretted is when I've observed something that I could have followed up on, and I didn't. Those are the only regrets, although regrets are useless, as we both know. But... Um, I think that, you know, Carol Dweck writes about mindset, growth mindset and fixed mindset. Some people, they say, look, this is how I am and this is how I'll always be and, you know, nothing's going to change. It's worked for my grandfather, it worked for my father, it works for me. That's not, especially in these days when things are changing so quickly. Um, you know, I love uh, learning from younger generations who are so much more tech-savvy than I am. And, you know, maybe I have a thing or two to teach them. But it's the fun of the exchange of new and the old information that, that sort of turns me on. So those are things I would say is, is that's just my nature. But I think whatever it is your, your nature is, 
you can always develop it and grow it or you can th uh, thwart it. And I think going with your nature is likely to be more successful. So I, there's one word in there that you said that is just uh, resonating with me, which is contrarian. And my parents joke, they say, when Brian was about 12 years old, we thought he'd be a great psychologist. And we knew that if we told him that we thought that, he would go the complete opposite direction. And I was. Uh, we talked about sports before we turned on the mics. And I was very small as a kid, scrawny and small, but basketball was my sport of choice. And so people would be like, oh, well, you're not going to be good enough to play this, that, and the other. And I would just go right toward it because uh, I liked I don't want to say proving people wrong, but I liked trying to to go toward things that um, others said I, I couldn't. So I guess there's a chip on the shoulder kind of proving people wrong in there. But for me, the idea of contrar being contrarian helps me in a lot of instances because it allows me to see things differently than how someone else might see it. But there are times in my life where I've found myself being contrarian just for the sake of being contrarian or being to the contrary of. And I found that that doesn't always serve me. And so I've, I think I've learned how to quiet the contrarian mind at times because it doesn't always serve anyone. Sometimes it just serves my ego. Um, and maybe I'm thinking of being contrary different than, than how you are. But I am wrestling right now with when is it appropriate for me to challenge and be contrarian and think things differently? And when do I just... You use the word open-minded. And what spoke to me when you were talking was, I think of myself as being open-minded and contrarian. And I think both of those can serve me, but there are times when they don't necessarily serve me. So once again, not that you are a thousand years older than me, but you've got a couple of years on me. I would love to learn from you as far as how you've navigated when to sort of um, be open and, and when to maybe push back and be contrarian. Well, you know, I think it's a great question, and it's interesting because I know you do coaching, and I do coaching, and that's where a coach can really help, because somebody just sort of plays it out with you. What would happen if you went with a contrarian impulse? What could be the good things that could happen? What are the downsides? What are the likelihood of this or that? What about giving it a shot? What do you lose by giving it a try? What does it involve? Because there's always going to be some sunk cost in going off in a certain direction and taking a certain amount of time to do something or resources that you might plow into something. There's going to be a cost, but how much is the cost? Any investment involves a cost. What is the cost-benefit of this? What is the cost-benefit of that? Just having somebody do the war games with you around these various ideas is very, very helpful. Uh, and you know that preparation done in advance can often pay off richly. So in my own work, I, I'm never threatened by somebody having a good new idea. I always feel excited. Not all the good new ideas have to come from me, and I, I love it. Um, but on the other hand, it's also necessary to sort of challenge something because you don't want to see somebody go off and put a lot of work and money and stuff into something that comes to nothing. But, you know, I had my shot. I went for my stuff. Fortunately, very fortunately, my whole seasonal thing 
got supported by the NIH. Uh, my TM thing got supported. Um, I then went and did uh, research in Botox for depression. That was an out-of-the-box kind of thing. I'm now embarking on um, a new, my new venture is poetry as therapy. And I just have a feeling that it's really there. I have, you know, been trying to secure uh, somebody to back me in that area, but poetry is at this point in time not the hottest commodity. So um, I think that it's a case-by-case thing, but if you've got somebody or some people who can give you a workout, that's what I'd say. I wouldn't even say it's advice or feedback. It's a workout uh, in which your ideas can be tested. Uh, that can be very, very helpful. I love that you're interested in poetry. I'm going to introduce you to an organization called DC Scores, and I want to say it on the microphone to give DC Scores some publicity. Uh, DC Scores takes inner city kids and has them play soccer in the fall and the spring because soccer in a lot of the DC public schools is not offered. So they get them out on the field, they get them playing and then the winter they do poetry and they do incredible poetry. And these kids blossom and gain self-confidence because they don't just have to write, but they also have to read it. And so they might have a population where you might be able to partner with in some capacity. Uh, DC scores is an organization that I've seen the poetry up close and personal. It's immensely powerful. And you see these, uh, young, uh, inner city kids just booming as they deliver their poetry. And I think the soccer probably gets them in the door. And then the poetry, a lot of the kids, um, get introduced to and, and find it to be really incredible. So they're, they're a pretty amazing organization that blends soccer and poetry and probably up your alley. Thanks for bringing that to my attention. Yeah. Well, here's where I'd love to finish. First of all, I think we could chat for hours and hours. This has just been a lot of fun and I've learned a lot and hope that I can continue to learn from you. Um, but I wanted to finish with the letter that your mom wrote you and your siblings in her will, I believe. And I just wanted to read it to you um, and get your thoughts on it. So it was, Dear Children, I feel that during my lifetime, I haven't told you sufficiently often how much I love you. You have been there shining lights throughout my life. You have been a mother's pride and joy. I wish you all a long and healthy life and have as much pleasure and happiness from your children as I have had from mine. How does that make you feel when you hear someone else read that? Well, every time I either read it or hear it, it, it really brings tears to my eyes because I know how sincerely meant it was. And she left it with her will, and she said, you know, I've never to I haven't spoken to you about this as much as I should have. But I'm reminded of a quote by the female writer of the, of the 19th century, um, George Eliot, who said, I not only want to be loved, I want to be told that I'm loved because the realm of silence is wide enough beyond the grave. And I think what I would leave everybody with at the end of this conversation, which I've enjoyed very much and I appreciate your having me on the podcast, is today, Take a moment and tell somebody you love that you love him or her because 
that is one of the greatest things that we can do. So it's a beautiful place for us to wrap. Uh, before we do, I just want to give you a megaphone to promote your books, promote something that you're passionate about, where people can find out and learn about the work that you're doing. So just use this time to just let people know where they can learn and, and read all the great work that you've put out there. Well, thank you. It's quite simple. Um, my website is normanrosenthal.com. It lists my books. You can read a lot about me and some blogs I've written. My latest blog is Poetry Rx, Poetry is Treatment. I also have a professional Facebook page, Norman Rosenthal, and a new Facebook page called Poetry Rx. So if you want to learn more about me and my work, that's where you can learn. Terrific. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and on Instagram, intentional underscore performers. And I just want to thank you. Uh, when I first reached out to you, I think someone from your team said, oh, you know, this probably isn't of interest. And then you came in and said, no, I actually think this is something I'd like to do. And I don't really know why that happened, but I'm grateful that it did. Uh, and then I just enjoyed chatting with you on the phone immensely. And then, as I said, like learning from you. And then I just want to thank you for making the world better. Um, I, and your your work with the seasonal affective disorder has, has helped a lot of different people. Uh, you talked about you bringing, uh, giving transcendental meditation a megaphone uh, with your book Transcendence. And so thank you for everything you're doing. You have made an impact on the world. Uh, I'm sure mom and dad are, are proud and looking down on you and the work that you're doing, even though you didn't go into pathology. And uh, thank you for coming in and uh, looking out at your old office building across the street that's just a little bit bigger than the one that we have here. So thank you for the time and, and thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for your hospitality. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. So... One of the young men who was bipolar told me, hey, listen, doc, he says, you know, your medicines are all good and well, but what's really making me happy 90% of the time is this transcendental meditation that I'm doing. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I did it in South Africa, you know, 35 years ago. So he said, well, why don't you get back to it? I said, I'm nodding my head, you know, 20 minutes twice a day. Where am I going to find the time? But he nagged me put me in touch with somebody and um, basically you know when I heard him nagging me like that I thought wow you know this is the universe talking to me through this young man let me see what it's all about and indeed I started doing it and it's actually transformed my life it's made me very much calmer and more playful more creative Several of my books were published after I started meditating. 